Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. We did it, everybody. We did it. Thank you to myself, and thank you to all of you for listening, and especially all of you who've helped the show in various other ways as well, whether spreading the word or financially or any other way that you've helped out the show. I certainly couldn't have done it all without myself, but I really seriously couldn't have done it without all of you as well. We did it. The Dangerous History Podcast made it to episode 100. And what's that thing you often hear? The the repeated statistic, it's almost become a cliche at this point. Most podcasts do not make it beyond five episodes. Well, we spiked that football into the ground a long time ago. And in fact, in terms of months and years, we're almost at two years now. Which means I've been doing pretty good at averaging about an episode a week. Some Sometimes I go a little bit longer than a week between episodes, but then I've had some other weeks where I do two episodes in the same calendar week. So, yeah, we're, we're averaging right around an episode per week in the almost two years. I, I think it'll be two years in uh, June since the beginning of the Dangerous History Podcast. And, of course, we're at episode 100. Nice round number. Welcome to episode 100 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I decided to do something kind of weird which is miscellaneous, random, off-topic stuff. It's going to be sort of a Lollapalooza of that sort of thing. I am going to be doing, not really a retrospective, but just sort of like a state of the podcast and portent of some things to come. going to be doing a little bit of that today. Also going to be answering some random listener questions. These are questions that uh, really have little or nothing to do with history, that have to do with other stuff. Going to be telling you some couple of really weird, but I think interesting stories of people who most likely are just batshit crazy, but, you know, maybe there's a slight possibility they might actually know something that we don't, and you'll, you'll get what I mean when I get into those stories later on. But I just received a weird piece of mail to my work that I'll, I'll talk about that was bizarre, and sparked a memory of an incident now probably pushing close to 10 years ago that also was similarly just batshit crazy. So anyway, you'll that might be too vague, but you'll find out what I'm talking about when I get to that. Now you may be able to tell right now I'm speaking to you from the Silver Bullet, 
from the cockpit of the 2014 Hyundai Accent hatchback finished in sparkly silver color, making my commute home from work as I'm recording this. And you may notice over the course of this episode some sort of changes in, in how I sound a little bit from time to time. And the reason for that is in true Gorilla Warrior style, I'm recording bits and pieces of what will be Frankenstein together into this episode 100 extravaganza, kind of when and where I'm able to. In this segment, I'm in the car. Other segments of this episode, I may also be in the car, or I may be at home. And so you might notice, you know, the the audio quality changes a little bit, or the background noise changes a little bit. You know, don't worry. it's Nothing's happening to me, and you're, you're not going crazy. I am forced by circumstances to follow the path of the gorilla, to do what I can, what I'm able, when and where I'm able to. And that's one thing I've learned, at least for me, I'm an extremely busy guy. You know, I've got a full-time teaching job. I've got a commute that's 40 minutes each way to the teaching job. I've got a family. I've got a wife and two children. I've got several, for lack of a better term, hobbies, although to me, they mean a little bit more than what hobbies mean to most people, I think. Of course, the the biggest of which for the last two years has been this show. And then I've got all the tasks of, you know, fixing stuff around the house and yard work and all the other sorts of things you have to do when you have a house and a job and a mortgage and kids and all these things to take care of and home and vehicles to, to see to maintaining and so on. Add into that a bunch of other things that have been happening in the past year or so. Um, that have been messing with my time and finances in various ways. And long story short, if I weren't willing to do things in guerrilla fashion, hit and run whenever I'm able to, I would never get anything done. So anyway, before I proceed on into more of this bizarre miscellaneous episode, I would normally hear talk about the people who have stepped up since the last episode to help me out over at patreon.com slash profcj. But unfortunately, there have been no new Patreon patrons who have signed up since episode 99. So I don't have anyone to thank by name, although I will say a continuing, ongoing thank you to those who are still supporting the show via Patreon. I've lost a few patrons lately, and I don't know if that's because, you know, people's, the credit card they had on file at Patreon expired and they just never updated it or or what, but um, some people all of a sudden dropped off at the end of last month. So anyway, remember, if you go over to patreon.com slash profcj, you can sign up to support this podcast with a per-episode donation amount. Your choice what amount, any amount, I'll thank you by name in the next episode I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, and more is certainly welcome, and I highly appreciate many of the patrons who signed up for well over a dollar per episode, but for at least a dollar per episode... You'll have access to bonus episodes I put out there about every month or two that are available nowhere else. So please consider doing that if you're not already. Thank you to those of you who have been ongoing Patreon supporters of the show. I can never say thank you enough to you all. And if you're somebody who was a patron and maybe your credit card info expired, um, if you could find it in your heart to go update that if you want to still keep supporting the show, assuming that's the case, assuming you didn't stop for some reason like you've stopped liking the show or something, um, please... Uh, take care of that so you know it'll help me out and i'm kind of uncomfortable doing this but i want to throw out a special request 
I mentioned last episode, I am going to be going to Porkfest, at least for the last few days of it, in New Hampshire in late June. And I'm going to be giving a presentation there. And last time I mentioned, um, if anyone wants to throw any like one-time donations through PayPal or Bitcoin, uh, please consider doing so to help me get to Porkfest and then get back home when it's over. And in addition, um, if anyone is able to, number one, if you're not a Patreon supporter, please consider signing up to do that. Number two, even if you, you are one or if you, for whatever reason, never want to be a Patreon supporter, if you have a few bucks that you could possibly spare, I could really use it right now. And I really kind of don't like doing this. I'm, I'm not comfortable sort of being a beggar. But if you could throw a few extra bucks my way in the next month or two, it would mean the world to me. And the reason is that I'm getting clobbered with medical bills at the moment. And it is not because of anything that went wrong with me. I was just finishing paying up medical bills for one of my children being hospitalized a while back, I think like six months ago, something like that. And then right as I was finally getting to the end of paying those off, then my wife had to have back surgery. And the good news is she's recovering very well. And it seems to have really done the trick. She was in horrible pain and experiencing all kinds of, um, you know, she, she was almost disabled for a long time and had chronic pain and had to have surgery. Good news is she seems to be recovering well. The bad news is even though I have relatively, you know, to what's the norm these days, I have decent health insurance. Um, as I'm sure many of you have experienced in your own situation, decent health insurance these days means you still end up paying a crap ton of money anytime you have to do anything involving hospitalization or surgery or what have you. So I'm getting clobbered with medical bills, and I'm sure you all know how it works. You get the bill from the doctor's office who actually did the operation. You get the bill from the hospital itself for using their facilities. You get the bill from the anesthesiologist who, who gassed the patient. And you get a bill from, like, you know, two, two three other different specific uh, groups or offices or individuals. It's never just like, here's the bill. And um, it's, it's thousands of dollars, let's put it that way. And, again, if, if you're strapped, if you're having situations like this in your own life at the moment... I completely understand. Please don't don't uh, dip into your family's fund to help me out. But if you have the ability, um, if you could throw a few bucks my way, it would it would make a world of difference to get me through this, to keep the show going while while I'm dealing with all this. And then also, um, I do want to make it up to Porkfest in late June. So a few bucks towards that also would would make a huge help. It's a crazy time for me, aside from dealing with all that stuff I just mentioned. Of course, I'm continuing to, to teach full-time. I'm continuing to try to put out podcasts on a relatively regular basis. This time of year, even without all the other stuff, is always a tough time of year, kind of the latter part of the spring semester. And the reason is because there's a lot going on. I'm usually trying to finish up evaluations of adjuncts, which I've most years I've got to do at least a couple of those where I observe an ad, adjunct teaching a class and I you know, have to write up a little report and what have you. And very often, some of those will end up being um, left towards the end of spring semester simply because I have so much other stuff going on the remainder of the year that inevitably 
you know, one or two ends up being done towards kind of the proverbial last minute. And then the other thing that makes the latter part of spring semester kind of a a wind sprint to the end, aside from the normal semester wrapping up stuff, is that we're doing schedules, class schedules, for the following fall semester. And I'm a semi-bigwig in my department, which means that I'm actually in charge of doing all of the social science courses scheduling at my campus. And so that just means, you know, I've got an extra layer of, of things to take care of on a daily basis at work, things to work on all the time, in addition to my usual duties regarding teaching classes, grading stuff, doing all that. And then there's one more unusual monkey wrench in the situation, at least for me this year, and that is at the end of April, I'm going to Ireland. I am, along with a a colleague of mine who teaches literature, I am going to Ireland leading a study abroad trip of, I believe, 14 students. And my colleague is teaching an Irish literature course to which the trip is attached. And, you know, it's a it's a college trip, so it's not just like we're leading a joyride or whatever. It is a trip that is connected to the Irish literature course. I'm not teaching any courses connected to it, but the college requires uh, two faculty to act as chaperones on a study abroad trip. So I, I'm the second guy. I'm the sidekick. And in addition to that, though, my college does not have an Irish history course in its catalog and is probably unlikely to add one anytime soon, if ever. Nonetheless, I actually have a fair amount of Irish history in my academic background. I've taken courses specifically on modern Irish history, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. And so even though I'm not teaching a course officially that's related to the trip, I am a semi-expert on Irish history, enough that I can provide some decent commentary and um, can sort of supplement what my colleague uh, in in the English department is going to be talking about, about Irish literature. And of course, as I'm sure many of you know, in the case of Ireland, it is impossible to separate the history and the literature. So it's going to be an awesome trip. It's going to be um, from like the end of April into early May, about a week and a half. And, you know, it's going to be an awesome trip. It's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. Um, I know several of the students who have signed up and they're good people, so it should be a great trip. But it's not a vacation. It's not a joyride. It's not like I'm just going someplace to hang out and chill and that sort of thing. I'm going to be, you know, shepherding over a dozen students and helping to kind of run the whole shindig and what have you. And you might be saying, well, if you're so strapped for cash, CJ, how the hell are you going to Ireland? And the, and the answer is, it's work. <laughs> the answer is, it's, it's, it's job-related. So I'm not paying out of my own pocket for a lot. I'm going to have to pay for, for some of my meals, not all of them, but some of them. And I'm going to have to pay for, if I, if I wanted any liquid refreshment, which the Emerald Isle, of course, is known for, and anything else I want to do that's not part of the official itinerary, if I wanted to buy myself a stuffed leprechaun souvenir or anything like that. Um, but most of the things we're doing, the lodging, the transport, the um, the sites that are on the itinerary, those are all covered for me because I'm doing it you know, as part of my job leading an official college trip. So that's the answer. And I'm looking forward to the trip, but of course preparing for it and then running it uh, is stressful. It's not terrible kind of stress. It's not the same kind of stress like I'm going to war or a close loved one is dying, but it is It is a little bit of stress. It is, you know, some stuff to do, some extra responsibilities and so on. So anyway, all of that put together means that 
this month is pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. And then I'll get back from Ireland, and for about a month and a half, I'll be teaching summer school. And then the day that summer school ends, I'm probably going to be leaving straight from work in the early afternoon and gunning north en route for Porkfest. And again, kind of like the Ireland trip, looking forward to it. It ought to be cool. It ought to be fun. But man, is it going to be is it going to be a whirlwind for me? Because I'm basically going to be gunning it all the way up to New Hampshire, 1,300 miles north from where I live, at Porkfest just a couple of days, and then gunning it south. So it is really going to be a hit-and-run guerrilla warfare operation. I will be traveling fast and light. It's going to be the light infantry of intellectual warfare. Very much in keeping with the theme of my presentation, which, as I mentioned last time, is tentatively titled The Tao of Mao, Applying the Way of the Insurgent to Things Other Than War. Now, I want to mention, before I forget, some other things that you can look forward to in the relatively near future with the Dangerous History Podcast. Aside from the History of Slavery series, which is going to have at least two and possibly three more parts as far as I envision it right now, but non-contiguous, I'm going to probably have some breaks in between from time to time. Also, by the way, I'll mention I, I am working on research and notes for the Patreon bonus episode that I've mentioned that I'm going to do that has a lot of connection to the History of Slavery series, which is a Patreon bonus episode about the Haitian Revolution. And connecting that to the history of slavery in America, because there's a lot of connection and a lot of influence on sort of politics and so on of slavery in America in the 19th century because of events in Haiti. That's something that's not often appreciated today by those who are not scholars who have delved deeply into these into these topics. But in addition to the history of slavery series um, continuing and concluding probably within the next several weeks or month or so, I'm also anticipating in the relatively near future a one-off kind of standalone episode on the Easter Rising in Ireland in April of 1916 because this is the 100th anniversary of that event, which is really an, an incredible story if you know anything about it. You know, kind of the early part of the film, Michael Collins depicted some of it. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible kind of David and Goliath um, hopeless stand that eventually ignited a nation to fight for its independence. And the fact that it's the 100th anniversary of it near the end of this month is a good occasion to talk about it a bit. So I'm going to see, if possible, I'm going to try and make the release of that episode coincide with the exact date. I forget off the top of my head as I'm driving. I think it's April 26th is the day of the 100th anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rising. So I'm going to try and put something together about that. And yeah, we're going to be hitting Ireland less than a week after that. Unfortunately, we won't be there for the day of the 100th anniversary. Too bad. I would have loved to have been there for that. But Dublin in particular should still be kind of in that mode. It's sort of like, you know, the 100th anniversary of their equivalent of Fourth of July in a way. And I'm uh, something like, I don't know, a quarter Irish or what have you. So I can't help but even though I even though I realize nationalism is kind of a mental aberration and a, and a mental disease, nonetheless, I can't help but be a little bit sentimental in how I look at the Irish Rebellion and the Anglo-Irish War. You know, Bill Bupert and I talked about it a bit in our History of Irregular Warfare series a while back. 
And it really is a David and Goliath story that you can't help but have some sympathies for the Irish rebels, even though some of them were just simply seeking to boot out the English and then establish themselves as kind of the new overlords of Ireland. Still, on some level, I can't help but, but admire their courage and their craftiness and their willing to go up against great odds and still figure out a way to ultimately succeed. So that's coming up. Um, another thing that I'm going to be doing, I don't know, maybe in about a month or month and a half or so starting, kind of a- after I've wrapped up my History of Slavery series, is, and, and I've started to amass some sources for this, I've not really started the research in earnest yet, but I anticipate doing so once the Slavery series starts to wrap up, is I'm going to do a series, um, again, may not be, contiguous. A lot of my series get uh, broken up. Other things interspersed in between the episodes. But this series is going to be an entrepreneurial history of America. And the reason I want to do that, aside from the fact that I think it'll be cool and interesting, and I'm looking forward to doing more research on the topic and putting together the episodes, is almost in a way to kind of balance out the History of Slavery series. Because it's a lot of it's kind of grim, and there's no way around that. There's no way to hide that. There's no way to whitewash the fact that that was a terrible, oppressive institution and caused all, all these crimes and, and all these miseries and so on. And frankly, a lot of the research I've done for the History of Slavery series has been kind of depressing. I ran into the same thing when I was doing research for the Hiroshima and Nagasaki A-bombing episode I did um, last August kind of slows down the research at times, like, even though it's a topic that I think is very important and very interesting, at times I find myself getting slowed down in my research simply on account of, it's just grim. And yeah, there's the occasional glimpses of people heroically standing up for themselves, or heroically trying to get their freedom one way or another, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, and some stories of people heroically helping others to get their freedom as well. And that's all great, but I mean, on the whole, it's a grim story. And so I think that doing an entrepreneurial history of America is going to balance that out in a way, because then you'll get to see the great things that have been done by the entrepreneurs and innovators and so on, who in many ways, are responsible for the better parts of American history. Because American history is not all terrible. I mean, I cover a lot of the dark side because a lot of it's the stories that don't get told or don't get fully told. And so, you know, you've got to cover the Indian Wars. You've got to cover slavery. You've got to cover things like the A-bombing and MKUltra and Operation Ajax and PB Success and COINTELPRO. And it's important that people know these things. And it's important that people know this, this dark side of American history. And being ignorant of it allows people to be just continuously controlled. On the other hand, there is a good side to American history. And, of course, it's the aspects of American history that oftentimes have the least to do with the government. And that is the, the inventors, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and so on, who are at the end of the day, the most responsible for causing the economic miracle of the United States that, for all of its flaws, was for quite a long time the creativity and innovation marvel of the world. And that shows you what people are capable of when they are relative to other 
parts of the world at the time, mostly left alone and allowed to keep the fruits of their own productivity. And then, of course, raises the question of, well, if they were left alone even more and were allowed to keep all of the fruits of their productivity, uh, what, what more might people accomplish if you turn loose everybody to sort of be their own boss, be their own master? Or at least make it easier for people to do that if they want to do that. And I'm going to mostly stay away from, I might occasionally bring, bring something up as a counterpoint or as a sort of a foil or a contrast, but I'm going to mostly stay away from the so-called political entrepreneurs. And this is the distinction made by Burton Folsom in a, in a small but very um, important and interesting book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Many of you probably have read it. You've, I'm sure, heard me mention it on the show multiple times in the past. But um, in this little book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, Burton Folsom says there's really two categories of entrepreneurs in American history. There are the market entrepreneurs, which are the ones whose success is all due to simply providing customers with things they want and need and are happy to fork over money for that make their lives better. And then there are the political entrepreneurs, which are those entrepreneurs whose success is mostly or even entirely due to just getting government favors, to getting subsidies or regulations that benefit you at the expense of your competition, or even in extreme cases, complete government guaranteed monopolies on something, or handouts or bailouts or any other kind of corporate welfare, as it's often referred to. I'm going to mostly be staying away from those sorts of entrepreneurs, the genuine robber barons who I think do deserve to be looked upon as negative characters. Like I said, I might bring up a few of them every now and then to serve as contrasts, but I'm going to try and make this Entrepreneurial History of America series mostly positive. Again, to kind of balance out the karma of all this dark stuff that we've been covering, all this downbeat kind of stuff with slavery. Again, it's an important part of history, deserves to be covered, that's why I'm doing it, but, you know, kind of take a break for some things that perhaps are more positive and inspiring. So that's going to be coming up, and at some point a little bit further in the future, I'll be putting together a series on the United States' so-called Civil War, what I like to call the not-so-Civil War, for a variety of reasons. And that, I honestly don't know when I'm going to start making that, because that's going to require a ton of reading and research and work on my end before I can even put together the very first episode. And it's not that I don't already know a lot about that conflict. I do. I've taken entire courses just on that war at both the undergraduate and graduate level. And I've taught it a bazillion times in U.S. history courses. And I've read a ton of books and all that on the war. But I really want to delve into it deep before I start putting out Dangerous History podcast episodes. I want it to be at least as comprehensive and, and at least as kind of, you know, digging into areas that most people don't know about for that war as my American Revolution series was for that war. And so, honestly, I don't know when I'll start actually putting out episodes on the Civil War. It may not be until the fall. I'm hoping that the time I have off in the latter part of the summer is going to enable me to put in a lot more time doing research, reading through piles of books and so on. And I don't know if I'll be able to actually start putting out episodes in the latter part of the summer or not until the fall. In the meantime, I'll be doing other miscellaneous things, you know, other potential smaller miniseries 
one-off episodes, standalone episodes, possibly also some interviews as well. We'll see. The next thing I want to do is answer some miscellaneous listener questions, questions that have little or nothing to do with history. So something totally different and contrarian. Now on to some listener questions. And I asked for questions that were sort of not the usual types of ones that would be asked of me and that I would answer in listener emails episodes. And I actually got a bunch of the same or similar ones and then a few that were that were different. So first I'm going to answer the questions that a lot of people ask different versions or different combinations of these things. And basically wanting to know more about me. I've been kind of vague about a lot of this stuff in the past, and I'll, I'll talk about why in a moment. But these were questions along the lines of, you know, where I went to school, where I got my degrees from, where I currently teach, where I'm located, those sorts of things that I've not really gotten into in the past. And some people have asked about, you know, the pseudonym and playing my cards close to the vest sort of a thing. And here's what I'll say to that first before I answer some of these questions. It's only a semi-pseudonym, first off. My first two legal initials on all my government um, ownership of me papers actually are C and J. So that's, that's not made up, and probably most of you would have figured that it's not made up. And I actually do technically, now that I'm, and have been for, for several years now, a tenured full-time faculty member at my college, I do actually have the title of professor. Not that that means I'm right about everything or that I know everything, but it's just that's that's why I had my pseudonym what it was. It was actually, in a way, an honest pseudonym. And the reason I've been kind of close to the vest with these things up, up till, well, now I'm going to start talking about some of this stuff. I suppose if you were going to be uncharitable, you could say it was some form of cowardice. I suppose if you wanted to be more charitable, you would say it's something along the lines of prudence or wise caution. The thing is, when I started this podcast almost two years ago from when I'm recording this, in a couple months it'll be a full two years, I'd already been teaching college history for, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight years, and I thought I was reasonably good at it, but I had absolutely no background in any sort of, like, audiovisual media creation and sharing those sorts of things over the, the internet. You know, I've, I've never made any videos that I've uploaded to YouTube ever in my life, still haven't, although I guess I've now been interviewed for YouTube shows a couple of times, but I've never personally made a YouTube video. Prior to starting this podcast, I had made little simple podcasts for my students that I would post in Blackboard. We use Blackboard as the, the online component to courses. And it would be kind of like things you would have here, but usually much shorter and not as elaborate, and I wouldn't go into nearly as much detail and so on. But I didn't really have any experience in media, audiovisual creation beyond that. I'd done some writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I've had some things published, but that was about the extent of it. And so when I started the podcast, and again, you could call this cowardice or you could call this prudence and caution... I had no idea how it was going to go or where it was going to go or if anyone would like it or if it would accomplish anything or how it would be received. There was all total uncertainty. And I've got kind of a weird split personality 
when it comes to um, attention, where I like having people consume my content. I want to get my voice heard in various ways, but I also kind of like privacy. I'm kind of I I don't I don't want to be a a celebrity. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing. Like I I, I want to be heard, and I would like to be respected at least by people that I give a crap about their respect. But at the same time, I, I don't want it. I don't want to be one of those real celebrity type people. So I mean, even if this podcast becomes much more successful than it is, I still wouldn't want to be a quote unquote celebrity type person. It's just not my. That's not my thing, and I, I don't like people like that. And so, for all those reasons, I decided to kind of play it close to the vest on details of who I am, my background, where I am, that sort of thing. But since the podcast has been going for a couple of years, a hundred episodes, and does have a, a modest, loyal following, I think it no longer makes sense. And it's no longer realistic to try and keep it as much of a secret identity type thing as I have up until now. So, anyway, long story short, I am going to answer some of these questions. And I suppose the easiest way to kind of answer all the different varieties and combinations of questions of this sort is to just sort of tell, like, a brief mini-bio. You know, the bios I've put up on my website or on Patreon or what have you up till now have been short and vague, like he's been teaching college history for this long and he's done the podcast for this long and so on, and that's kind of it. So let's start back at the beginning. I was born in September of 1981 in Miami, Florida. I lived in the Miami area until I was partway through first grade, at which point, because my parents had been divorced and then my mom was getting remarried, we moved one county up from what was back then just called Dade County up into Broward County, which, is, if you don't know your South Florida geography, is the county that contains Fort Lauderdale. It's the largest, largest city in, in Broward County. And we lived in a suburb um, west of Fort Lauderdale then for the remainder of my kind of grade school years, you know, through, through high school graduation. So that's where I'm originally from. That's where I grew up, the South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale Metroplex. And then after I graduated from high school, I ended up going to a small private liberal arts college in St. Augustine, Florida called Flagler College. Most of my buddies went to either University of Florida or FSU. I was the oddball. I was the only one I knew from my high school graduating class that went to Flagler College which at the time that I went to Flagler College, I think it only had about 2,000 students to give you an idea of how small of a college it is. It's a bit bigger now. It's actually been built up a bit since I left there, since I graduated. But for the most part, I really enjoyed it there. At the time, it was a high-quality, small liberal arts college that prided itself upon still being relatively affordable. It, it was often listed in, like, the best deals for high-quality private colleges at reasonable prices and so on. It marketed itself kind of that way. And I was able to go there, and I was able to graduate in three years because I had done some AP courses and also some dual enrollment courses at community college back in South Florida when I was still in high school. So in about three years, I graduated from Flagler 
I was one of the cum laude's. I can't remember which one. I think I was like the second best cum laude, and I can never remember which is which, magna, summa, whatever. And I also got my the award from my department for being the uh, the best student within my department of that graduating class. I actually tied with one other guy, and so they kind of awarded the award to both of us. And somewhere in a dusty bin in the back of a closet someplace, I got a little plaque they gave me. Um, just, you know, kind of a funny thing. During my last year at Flagler College, I met my now wife, and actually we got married just after... I graduated from Flagler College. I believe it was like one week after I graduated college that I got married. And then I wanted to go to graduate school. My initial desire at the time was to work all the way through to a Ph.D. and then, you know, try and get a, a position at a, at a fancy university. I wanted to get out of Florida, though. There's, there's some things I don't like about Florida. Namely, the fact that it's too hot, too flat, and too crowded for my taste. North Florida is a bit better than South Florida in all those regards, but still not as much as I would like. It's got a few gentle rolling hills here and there. That's about it. It's not quite as crowded, at least outside of the few major cities, as South Florida. And it does get at least kind of a little tiny dab of of (laughs) non-summer. I don't hesitate to call it winter because it's not... it, It rarely gets down to freezing. But even so, by the time I graduated Flagler, I wanted to get out of Florida for graduate school, even though it was a dumb move financially, because if I had stayed in state, I could have gone to grad school a little bit cheaper. But hey, when you're 21, 22 years old, whatever I was, I think I was 21, maybe 22, you don't always make the best rational decisions, especially when it comes to finances. And so I applied to a few different schools in the southeastern United States for graduate school, and the one that I got into that was actually in a location I really liked because I had been to it before was the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And so that's where in the spring after I graduated from Flagler College, my wife and I moved to Knoxville. We found a, a very affordable little rental home in South Knoxville. And I attended the University of Tennessee at Knoxville for two years and earned a master's degree, and at the end of that, I was basically pre-accepted into their Ph.D. program when I completed my master's degree. They're basically like, yeah, you you know, you can walk right into it if you want. And for a variety of reasons, including family reasons, personal reasons, being kind of burnt out on academia by that point, um, being pretty damn broke, I decided that I had better just kind of find the best job that I could get with a master's degree in history and make some money. By then I had a, I had my first kid and going to grad school for another bunch of years was just simply not not feasible. And like I said, I was kind of burnt out on the whole academia thing anyway. I mean, you've probably heard, if you've listened to a bunch of episodes of this podcast, you've probably heard my periodic digs at certain elements of academia. And so... We actually ended up moving back to St. Augustine. If I could have my cake and eat it too, I would have rather stayed in Knoxville in the East Tennessee area. I enjoyed the the climate and geography and so on a lot more than Florida, but for a variety of reasons, we felt we had to move back to Florida at the time. And when when we moved back to Florida, I was able to get a job teaching as an adjunct at my alma mater, Flagler College. 
and it was already starting to change. It's not the same school that it was when I was there. It's bigger. I don't know the numbers offhand. I don't know how much bigger, but in the years since I graduated from Flagler, they've added a bunch of different uh, additional classroom buildings and, and built some extra dorms and whatever, and it's, I mean, it's still small compared to a big state university, but it's much larger than when I went, and from what I've heard from people who have gone there in recent years, it's no longer the deal financially that it that it used to be when I went. But I actually got hired to teach um, some Western Civ classes by the guy who had been my academic advisor in the history department when I was a student there. So, you know, that connection helped. So during that first year after moving back to St. Augustine, I taught Western Civ classes at Flagler College, and I was also able to get a gig up in Jacksonville at Jacksonville University, which is another pretty good private school. And when I was doing both, I would teach two modern world history courses at JU in the morning and then drive back down to St. Augustine. And JU is in a part of Jacksonville called Arlington, which is actually pretty far north. So it was, you know, about an hour drive from St. Augustine up to up to JU. So I teach my two morning classes up at JU, and then I would jump in the car and head south. And again, about an hour-long commute, and I would typically eat lunch while I was driving from JU down to back down to, to St. Augustine to go to Flagler. And we were living in St. Augustine at the time. And I'd come down and I would teach two Western Civ classes in the afternoon at Flagler. So I was teaching what almost would count as a full-time a full-time teaching load, but I was an adjunct, so I was making, you know, proportionally a lot less pay for, for the equivalent number of classes that a full-time person would. But I liked the teaching part of it. I enjoyed it. I, en- I enjoyed teaching the classes. I enjoyed interacting with students. I enjoyed seeing that kind of light bulb go on over students' heads when you help them to understand something or learn something new. So I felt like, yeah, this is the thing for me. Now, the problem, which I kind of knew, but then I found out it was even more um, rigid than I had thought, the problem I ran into is that these days there are very few full-time college teaching jobs in most subjects that are open to people that have only a master's degree. Because of the degree inflation, because of the proliferation of people getting degrees, it's saturated the market, and so... That com- that has caused the accreditation in- institutions that that accredit the the colleges and universities and that sort of you know audit the the credentials of all their faculty and and do all these other things to you know verify that yes they're an accredited uh, institution they've jacked up their standards from what they were just you know a generation ago not too many years ago you could actually get a full time teaching job at a pretty nice college with just a master's degree. In fact, the guy who was kind of like my supervisor and mentor for my classes at JU was a guy who had been teaching history at JU for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, and he only had a master's degree. And when he had come along 20 or 30 years ago, you could get a full-time teaching job at Jacksonville University, a pretty nice, respectable little school with just a master's degree, which you cannot do today. And so he just, you know, was grandfathered in. He's still working there, at least was still working there last I checked. And I knew that a big university like Florida State University or what have you would not hire a full-time 
history faculty member who didn't have a PhD. But I, I was under the impression, and I just, you know, hadn't, I guess, done, done enough research, that Flagler College, because it was a private, small college, might be able to kind of, you know, bend the rules a little bit for me. Because as I was teaching as an adjunct at Flagler, and I was enjoying it, and I was getting really positive uh, reviews from students in the student surveys and things that they they fill out to rate rate teachers, I was getting really positive feedback from students. And a full-time history position opened because they were increasing the size of their faculty because the, the school was growing. And I thought, well, I don't have a PhD, but maybe they'll, they'll let me in anyway for that job because I'm an alumnus and I'm already teaching here as an adjunct. And by all measures, I seem to be doing a good job. And there's no reason I couldn't just, you know, teach a few additional uh, more advanced courses and, and do a full-time load. And I thought in my mind, like, you know, may, maybe they'll even, uh, the worst, at worst, maybe they'll, they'll make a deal with me where, like, you know, you have to work on your Ph.D. through UF or something and get it within a certain number of years if we hire you as full-time. I, like, I, I didn't yet quite grasp, I knew academia was rigid in these sorts of things, but I didn't quite yet grasp how ironclad rigid it is. Because in many jobs in the real world, outside of academia, there's the ability to do things like waive formal degree requirements and things like this if you can prove competency in a field, or uh, at worst, to you know, hire you for some some job that you've already demonstrated you can do and then say, listen, um, you know, within however much time, we do want you to get whatever formal degree or certification that you really are supposed to have for this job. Like, we'll let you start doing it because you've shown in other capacities that you can do it, but we'll give you some some time um, to get that formal requirement punched out. Meanwhile, you've got the job. Like, I thought that sort of thing could be worked out, but apparently, at least in this day and age, it cannot. And so even though I had proven that I could teach college history courses just fine, I was shut out. They basically said, you can't even apply for this full-time teaching job here because you don't have a Ph.D. And I have to say, like, that, that did, that did kind of hurt me. I mean, I, it wasn't personal. It wasn't Flagler College or anyone working there, you know, doing anything against me. They liked me. It was the accreditation body that was the one tying their hands where they they couldn't bend anything, they couldn't make any exceptions. Because the accreditation body wanted them to have all newly hired full-time faculty members must have a PhD. And so when that happened, I realized that I had no future at Flagler College and Jacksonville University as an adjunct, that neither of those two schools would be able to hire me for a full-time position even if they wanted to. Again, because of this rigid system and and all that. And so that's when I began to say, I've got to figure something out because I'm not making great money as an adjunct, even though I'm teaching almost a full-time load of classes. And there's a glass ceiling because of my lack of a Ph.D. where where most four-year colleges and, and certainly all universities are not even going to let me apply for anything full-time, that I had to look elsewhere and so I began looking. Plan A was to try to get a full-time job at a community college because community colleges still might hire you for a full-time gig without a Ph.D. 
they had not yet um, been been forced by the accrediting institutions to require a PhD for full time. And so I started applying to community college jobs around Florida in all sorts of corners of the state and nothing, nothing, no, no good. Was not even able to get a phone interview. And then I happened to learn of a job at what was then called St. John's River Community College, which has campuses in three counties in northeast Florida, including one in St. Augustine where I was living. Unfortunately, for, for the sake of my commute, the opening was not at the St. Augustine campus. It was at the Palatka campus, which is about a 40-minute drive south-southwest. Yeah, I guess more west than south, west-southwest west, from St. Augustine. It's a smaller town in, in a little bit more rural area. And they had a full-time teaching position open that I could apply for with just a master's. And long story short, it went really well. Got an interview, you know, really quickly and got hired really quickly. And that's where I've been ever since. Um, Some years back, the college got a facelift and an upgrade. It is now no longer St. John's River Community College. It is St. John's River State College, which, as far as I know, has happened to every community college in Florida. They've been upgraded to so-called state colleges, and basically what it means is they actually have some bachelor's programs and things like this. And so anyway, that's where I teach, and that's where I've been teaching since uh, 2007. St. John's River State College, the campus in Palatka, Florida. I still live in St. Augustine. It's sometimes referred to as the oldest city in America, and the rationale for that is it was the first European settlement founded on mainland North America that has endured continuously ever since, and so it was founded in 1565 by Pedro Menendez, a Spanish conquistador, and it has been continuously occupied ever since, so it's, you know, 40-some-odd years older than Jamestown. And so when I do these episodes where I'm in the Silver Bullet, typically I'm either driving from my home in St. Augustine to work in Palatka or vice versa, about a 40-minute drive. So yes, I am a Florida man. Those of you who are familiar with the Florida Man Twitter account know what all that means. I'm not always proud of it, but I've learned to live with it. And that's my long-winded roundabout narrative way of answering those sorts of questions about my background, where I got degrees from, where I currently teach, where I'm located, that sort of thing. Um, St. Augustine's a neat town. Uh, I Like I said, I've got my problems with Florida in general, but... You know, if I have to live in Florida, it's better than a lot of other places. It's probably one of the better places to live in Florida. It's a town that actually has some character and some history and isn't as generic as some of the newer towns and cities that have sprouted up in Florida in the past, you know, 50, 60 years. And it does have a Spanish Coquina Fort that's uh, in the neighborhood of not quite 400 years old, I guess. If you've never been there, the Castillo de San Marcos, pretty cool. The hotels built by the railroad tycoon and former Standard Oil partner Henry Flagler, one of which has been made into um, the centerpiece of Flagler College's campus, those are a bit over a century old, but they're done in kind of a neat architectural style that makes them look older and cooler than they are. You can look up Flagler College or you can put in Ponce de Leon Hotel. That's what it was called when it was a hotel and see what I'm talking about. It's one of the more beautiful colleges, college campuses in America, as far as I'm concerned. And so, 
St. Augustine, it kind of annoys me when the tourists are particularly thick because it's tough when, like, you're just trying to go around town to go to work and run errands and what have you, and, like, there's a bajillion tourists clogging everything up. It does get kind of frustrating. But aside from that, if I have to be in Florida, it's probably the least bad place to be. So anyway, that's that. And so when I drive up to Lancaster, New Hampshire, that's why my drive is going to be over 1,300 miles because I'm going from St. Augustine, which is um, about 30, 40 miles south of Jacksonville, all the way up to northern New Hampshire. So it'll be quite a marathon. Several listeners asked in one form or another about my other interests and things like that besides history, anarchism, libertarianism, things related to that. You know, I have have a casual interest in economics, though I do not remotely claim to be an economist. And, um, you know, just asking for, for more about those sorts of aspects of things. I've mentioned some of it before in some different shows, including the the Taoism episode I did a while back and in a few other episodes, bits and pieces of this. But, yeah, I mean, I do follow the, the guerrilla scholar warrior renaissance man ideal. Of course, whether I actually live up to it or not is highly debatable, as I'd be the first to admit, but but I do see that as at least something to strive for, to be a a well-rounded, self-cultivated person who has knowledge and skills in a variety of areas and is not a super-duper specialist to the point where they're useless in anything else. And so, yeah, let's see what I can take off of things that I'm into besides the main points of focus of this show. I like to fish. One of the things that I really like about Florida is the fishing. It's one of the things, if I ever do move out of Florida, that I would probably miss. I don't fish nearly as much as I used to when I was a kid, or a teenager, or even when I was in in school at Flagler College, but I still try to go every now and then, so that's something I do. I shoot a fair amount, not as much as I would like to. I'll occasionally go to some sort of a course or what have you related to shooting, but not as much as I would like to on that either. Um, I keep thinking about getting into competitive shooting. They actually do some of it at the local range that I'm a member of, but I just keep not having the time to really devote to it, unfortunately. Too many other things going on, but... I think I'm reasonably decent at shooting. I've played guitar since I was about 12 or 13, and I think I'm pretty good at that. Although I haven't played professionally with bands and stuff like that in over a decade at this point. Just had too many other things vying for my time and energy. But I used to do that. I dabble a little bit in the visual arts. Back when I was in middle school and the early part of high school, I actually thought I wanted to be an artist when I grew up, and I was pretty good, especially with the medium of pencils. And in particular, in kind of like my early teens, I was big into comic books for a number of years. And so for a while there, my dream job was eventually to be an artist for comic books. But by the time I got into kind of the second half of my teens, as I was getting better at the guitar and starting to play in a bunch of different bands and what have you, that kind of displaced the drawing as my creative pursuit. But I've always loved all kinds of different creative things. The problem is just, you know, life gets in the way of being able to pursue all of them as much as I might like to. I'm sure many of you listening find yourself in the same boat as far as that goes. I used to do martial arts a bit back in my younger years, but that's another thing that I just fell away from. Lack of time and and money for many years to really pursue that. That's one of those things I keep meaning to get back into one of these days. Something I was big on for a while not that long ago that's kind of fallen off, especially since I started this podcast, which kind of eats up much of my time and energy that's not devoted to 
my job and to, you know, taking care of my kids and my family and everything is fiction writing. I love fiction, particularly horror and sci-fi, and I read a lot of it, and I've dabbled in writing short stories, and, you know, I think I have some potential there, but it's just a matter of getting the getting the time and focus to really be able to cultivate it better. I took several short story fiction writing classes when I was an undergrad at Flagler as electives, and I really enjoyed them, and, and I think I did pretty well at them. And it's just been sort of like a, a casual hobby for me, and then maybe about six years ago, I got serious about it, about publishing short stories and things like this. And I actually published a total of, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 short stories but not many in the past couple of years because I just haven't haven't been able to do it largely because again it seems like at least if you're somebody who's got a a full-time you know regular job and you've got kids and you've got you know all the obligations that go along with with a family and a household and everything it seems like it's difficult to have more than one major creative outlet at least it is for me and so when I started this podcast, and it wasn't anything I consciously intended, but my fiction writing just sort of faded away, and it's yet another thing I, I keep intending to get back into, because I, I really enjoyed it, and I think I had potential, but it's something that's just sort of, you know, faded onto the back burner for the time being. But like I said, I, ho- I hope to eventually get back to it. Other than that, I've been trying in recent times to get in better physical shape and health and lose weight and all that stuff. So that's actually been another thing that eats up my time when, you know, you go to a typical nine to five job like I've got, and then you try at least most of the days of the week to, to put in some good time exercising after that. And then you get home and you've got to, you know, help take care of your household and your family and all that. And at the same time, when, when you have time on the nights and weekends and things like this, or, the wee pre-work AM hours of the morning to work on this podcast. When you put all that together, my, my time is just squeezed pretty heavily, as is my energy. But it's one of those things, you know, I, I let my health really kind of go on the back burner for a number of years, and stress took its toll on me and all that. And so I've been trying recently to really focus on that more, because if you don't have that, everything else is going to fall apart and isn't worth much. Those of you who follow me on Twitter, by the way, may have seen some of my photos recently I've been taking on some of my walks and hikes and things like that. I try to lift weights at least a few times a week um, and then do cardio in the gym if it's raining, which if you've not spent much time in the sunshine state, quote-unquote, you might be surprised how much it actually rains a ton here. Believe it or not, Florida actually gets, most years, more inches of rain total than any other state in America, and it's the state that's called the Sunshine State. Now, you might be thinking, but what about those Pacific Northwest places like Oregon and Washington State, where those glittery vampires live, and it always seems to be raining? And the funny answer to that is, the Pacific Northwest states will typically have more days of rain than Florida. But the difference is, in those states, a lot of times it's just sort of a drizzle or a mist or what have you. Whereas in Florida, much of the time when it rains, it pours, like the old cliche is literally true here. And we get lots of just like massive storms and just hard, crazy rain. And so that's why even though we don't have as many days of rain as the Northwest, we actually get typically more inches than they do. But anyway, when it's not when it's not raining in the sh- Sunshine State 
as part of my exercise, get, get in better shape, lose weight routine lately. One of my favorite ways to get exercise is simply to be outside in nature, to be hiking and that sort of thing. So I've been hitting that. And those of you who follow me on Twitter have probably seen some of the photos that I snap of the nature, the scenery. Florida really does have a lot of natural beauty, not just the beaches that everyone typically is associates with it. And actually a lot of great places to hike and stuff like that. Now, it's different than other places that are perhaps better known for hiking because, of course, you don't have mountains. And there's really not even that many areas that have big hills. So it, it's different, but it has a beauty all its own. So anyway, those are some of the things that I do aside from work, family, and podcast. And in general, I love outdoorsy stuff. I haven't hunted in years, but I did hunt when, when I was in my, um, my teens and 20s. And it's yet another thing I would love to be able to do again sometime, but just haven't had the time and money in the past 10 years or so to, to really do much of it. Um, I like hiking, camping, all that cool stuff. I do get, at least get to do some of that. And like I said, I do get to fish. But I'm hoping at some point down the road I'll be able to do more of these things that I enjoy doing but don't have the some combination of time, money, and energy to do either at all or nearly as much as I would like. And I don't mean to whine or anything like that. I'm sure many of you listening are in the exact same boat. Now, at least one listener um, did ask more about music, I guess, has, has heard me mention elsewhere that I play guitar. I also sing a bit. I'm I'm a decent singer. I don't I don't think I'm like a great singer, but I'm a you know a competent singer, especially for sort of just standard like rock stuff and what have you. And I've been playing guitar for over 20 years now. And someone asked for more about that, like more of my background there, and um, also kind of what what kinds of music I like and that sort of thing. So okay, um, I did in my teens and I guess kind of into my early 20s a little bit. I did play in a number of different bands and a pretty wide diversity of uh, genres of music, including punk rock, alternative rock type stuff, as well as some heavy metal and some sort of classic rock mixed in with even what you might call semi-folky type stuff, but kind of folk rock, I guess. Personally, my favorite stuff is and has been for a while things like rockabilly music and its derivatives, punk rock, especially the more kind of melodic forms of punk rock. I don't like the like the hardcore screaming at the top of your lungs all the time stuff. But the more melodic punk rock, you know, just to throw out an example of what I'm talking about, something like Bad Religion, or even Social Distortion. And then I'm also a big fan of so-called alt-country, which, if you don't know what that is, look it up. Alternative country. It's very different from the mainstream country music, which, by the way, I absolutely cannot stand. Mainstream country music... Um, at least the last, like, 30 years of it or so, makes me want to vomit. It is such phony, formulaic, canned crap. But I like a lot of alternative country, which, if you don't know, is sort of a, a variable combination of, like, old-school country, you know, hearkening back to Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings-type stuff, uh, w- mixed with various types of alternative rock, punk rock, and rockabilly influences. And I really like a lot of that stuff. And so to me, my ideal thing, if I was going to be starting a band, would be to put together a small, like, power trio, or at most a four-piece, that was a mixture of punk rock, alternative country, and rockabilly. And that would be my ideal. I can do a pretty good simplified approximation 
of people like Brian Setzer or Junior Brown. I'm not I'm not as good as them, but I can do kind of my own simple simplified um, Jed Clampett version of what they do, and so kind of blend that into a bit of a punk influence. And I guess you'd have my ideal. So there you go. Um, none of the bands I played with when I was coming up lasted particularly long or, or made it anywhere worthwhile. Think of it as being just like, you know, a step above a stereotypical garage band. I mean, a few of them we actually could play pretty good, but we just never got much traction or it fell apart because of, of personal reasons. One of the better bands I was in for a while actually kind of fell apart simply because a lot of the band members graduated from high school and moved to different corners of the country. And so then the band was just sort of defunct there. But anyway, I've toyed with the idea of trying to put back trying to put together a band of my own. I never had a band that was like my band. I was always just kind of like a guitar player brought in as like a hired gun. That's how to think of it. So I never had a band where like I put it together and was steering it in my direction. I had to sort of adapt myself to what they wanted, whether it was classic rock or metal or punk or whatever. So in a way, I was almost like a studio musician for various garage bands. Never got to put together a band that was exactly what I wanted to make. Um, so I've toyed with the idea of that, but again, time, money, energy, all these things are finite. And if I put together a band, I would want it to be good. So I would want to practice a lot, and I just don't have the time and energy to do that, much as I would enjoy playing with a good band. All right, and now if you can't tell by the sound, I'm back at home. And I think I'll be finishing out the remaining segments of this episode from home, so it'll probably sound a bit better. But the first several were spliced together from a couple of commutes. And I have a couple of different but uh, very specific and interesting questions, both sent in by listener ZH. And the first one has to do with the Alexander Hamilton musical, which some of you may have heard of. I just heard of it a few months ago from one of my colleagues at work, actually. And in the email, ZH... Um, included a link to a Slate article on this, which I'll link to in the show notes page for this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I'll also link to um, a YouTube, either a video or a playlist of some of the Hamilton songs so you can get a feel for what it's all about, if you're not familiar already. And I'll also link to an article, a news article, that mentions that President Obama loves the Hamilton musical, and so does former Vice President Dick Cheney. And in this article, it says that it's something, one of the, I guess, the few things, not that they really agree on few things, but according to the news article, one of the few things Obama and Cheney very much agree on is loving this Hamilton musical. So, yeah, if Barack Obama and Dick Cheney agree on something, you know it has to be good, right? Kind of like when George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy agreed on something and we got No Child Left Behind, something that literally nobody of any persuasion likes. And this musical is based on Ron Chernow's largely positive, hero-worshipy biography of Alexander Hamilton. It's, I think, a little over 10 years old. I read it when it first came out a long time ago, and, you know, there, it's not like it doesn't have some good research, and, and, it, and it's well-written, but it's largely a hero-worshipping piece of Hamilton in particular and the Federalist generally, which, of course, is why the establishment loves it. So this musical is based on that biography, but in it, as I understand it anyway, all of the founding fathers are played by either black or Hispanic actors, which is just kind of weird. Um, I've got nothing against black and Hispanic actors being in a play, but it's just kind of strange to do in a historical play 
to specifically make the actors of different races than historical figures, right? These are not fictional characters. It's not like, you know, you're having a black guy play James Bond or something like that. So I just don't, I don't quite get that whole aspect. Anyway, just a, a little excerpt from ZH's email, quote, full disclosure, I have not seen the show. I fucking hate musicals. By the way, I'm with you on that, ZH. And have only heard some of the soundtrack, overheard peers in conversations raving about how much they enjoyed the show, and read some articles online. I am utterly confused by what appears to be a historical revisionist version of hip-hop hagiography. Are you familiar with this musical? What are your thoughts on it? And this type of revisionist historical narrative that looks to reinvent the past with modern sensibilities. Yeah, I kind of ping back and forth. I mean, I don't really think of this very much in general, but... I kind of ping back and forth from amused and laughing to like, wow, a lot of people really take this thing seriously. And I don't, I don't get that. I mean, to me, it's, if you take it as almost sort of like a, a weird Al Yankovic piece or something that would be on the Simpsons or something like that, not meant to be genuine, not meant to be serious, to be taken seriously, but to be a farce. Uh, in that sense, I suppose um, it seems like it might have some amusing bits if you take it as serious history, which I don't know, maybe some people do, then it's uh, it's pretty bad. And one of the things that really bugs me is this is a very pro-establishment, pro-the-most-authoritarian of the Founding Fathers version of the story of Hamilton's life and of the American Revolutionary Era. And they're trying to make it cool. They're making them all, you know, black and Hispanic characters that have rap battles and this sort of thing. And they're trying to make them cool and hip. And it's just, I, ugh, I really don't know what else to say from what I've read about it. And I don't ever intend to sit through it from what I've read about it. It is like Chernow's book, primarily very much pro Hamilton and pro Washington and opposed to their opponents. So it's, a version of history that in many ways is bootlicking the establishment and they're trying to make it hip and cool and urban and modern. So yeah, I'm, I'm not much of a fan again, unless it's intended to be, and it is interpreted to be as almost like a, a weird Al Yankovic musical or something like that. Um, but, but beyond that, I don't really have much else to say. I will say that I'm with you ZH on, I don't like musicals in general. Probably the only musical that on balance I mostly enjoyed was Book of Mormon. And of course, that's because that was done by the South Park guys. And it's probably the most offensive musical of all time. So it's not exactly your typical musical. But I actually did go and see that one in person when it was in Jacksonville a year or two ago. And I recommend it if you're somebody who's not easily offended. If you're someone who can, you know, sit through raunchy episodes of South Park and laugh, you'll probably get a kick out of Book of Mormon, too. If you're somebody who's easily offended, then maybe see something else. Don't say I didn't warn you. And the only other musical I thought looked like fun, but it wasn't actually made into a real musical, is maybe 20, 25 years ago on The Simpsons, back when Phil Hartman was still alive and on the show, voicing such classic characters as Lionel Hutz and, of course, the great Troy McClure. There was an episode where Troy McClure made his comeback in acting by starring in a musical version of Planet of the Apes. And we only get to see a few clips of it in the episode of The Simpsons in which this happened, but it was a lot of fun. So just just for kicks and giggles, I will link to that clip in the show notes as well, underneath the links to all the Hamilton-related stuff. And then the one other question that ZH emailed about specifically for this episode had to do with not voting. 
wanted to know my take on voting and specifically on not voting. And I have to say, I'm a big proponent of not voting. My life has become immeasurably happier and better since I not only stopped voting, but stopped really closely following politics and caring much about day-to-day electoral politics and all that. I mean, I still kind of keep an eye on it. You know, I want to know if the Redcoats are coming down my street tomorrow. I keep enough eye on that I'll have a notion of that, but I don't really follow it, and I certainly don't have any any emotional investment in the outcome of any of this stuff. I consider elections to mostly be pageantry and ritual. And I might have mentioned this metaphor before, but in the same way that, you know, some religions are big on ritual and some are less big on ritual. Well, with the religions that place a great emphasis specifically on ritual, the rituals are supposedly, to one who is a believer in that religion, the rituals are designed to make for lack of a better term, supernatural or magical transformations and things take place. And any religion that has an emphasis on ritual, you can find one or more examples of this in their belief system. And so probably one of the better known examples of this to Western ears is the Catholic concept of transubstantiation, right? That the priest performs certain specific rituals, says certain prayers, and then the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. And to someone who is a true believing Catholic, they that's an article of their faith, that even though it still looks and tastes and everything like bread and wine, it actually is the body and blood of Jesus, not just a, a symbol or, or a representation or what have you. Now, I'm not, you know, getting into that or any other religious ritual here, you know, whether to believe them or not, because that's that's not not my point here. My point is to say that an election in a modern so-called democratic republican system, an election is a ritual. It is a ritual that is performed so that the things that the state then does after that that ritual are given in the minds of most of the people who are believing in this political religion given a veneer of legitimacy. Even the people who voted for the candidate who lost, they might complain a little bit, but they ultimately go along with supporting the system itself still. And so the idea is, as long as you go through the proper rituals, you have the rituals of the primaries, uh, the conventions are nothing but ritual and pageantry. The conventions don't even choose the candidates anymore, not in any real sense. And yeah, people are talking about, oh, the conventions might be brokered this time. Yeah, maybe, but I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's likely, but uh, the, the the ritual of the primary, the ritual of the convention, which is this, you know, pageantry where they come up on stage and they give these sermons and they say these magical spells and mantras. And then you have the ritual of the election itself. And like a Catholic at, on Ash Wednesday, walking away from their religious ritual with the ashes on their forehead, people walk away from the election ritual with their little I voted sticker. And they think that they've done something important and they think that something um, basically magical, they don't use those words, but that's really what they mean is happening. And once the auspices, uh, the entrails of the pigeon, I'm sorry, the votes have been counted, then there is another ritual known as the inauguration at which a magical spell is performed by a wizard, excuse me, Supreme Court justice in a black robe. And upon reading the magical oath to swear loyalty to a document that they're going to repeatedly violate from day one, from that point on, this person is no longer simply a person. They are now Mr. President. And now they're special. 
And now everywhere they go, the red carpet gets rolled out and their theme song gets gets played. And they have an army of thugs following them around everywhere. And they get to kill people with flying robots on their word alone. And they get to oversee the organizations that spy on everything the American people do. And the election and everything that goes before and after it is all part of this elaborate ritual to make people think that this is all morally legitimate and just and right and good. It's also a tremendous distraction, too, from a lot of other things. It is almost a form of of uh, bread and circuses itself, in addition to all the other bread and circuses out there in kind of the media and entertainment and what have you. I think it's terribly unimportant. Um, the list of reasons why I think it is useless and a colossal waste of time and a major distraction and something which eats up not just your time, the time you spend following the polls and following all the speeches and campaigns and thinking about this. And it, it all eats up your time watching the political stories in the news and then standing in line to vote and actually voting and getting into stupid arguments with your friends over which person would be a better authoritarian dictator for the next four years. Those things all eat up your time. They potentially might eat up your money if you actually donate money to campaigns. It's money that could be better spent on lots of things. And it also soaks up your your mental energy. I know because I used to actually pay attention to these things and follow these things and go vote sometimes. And it really is a drain on your psychological energy. And so I think not just from the point of view of it doesn't do any good and it just encourages the system and it just lends a little bit further legitimacy to the ritual without actually doing anything to change anything in a positive way, that just looking at it as an individual, like there are so many better things you could do with the time and the energy that you put into that to actually make your life better. So yeah, I don't vote, haven't in a long time, doubt I'll ever vote uh, for the rest of my life. If they ever passed a law, I don't think it would happen in my lifetime, but if they ever passed a law in the United States mandating voting, um, I'll go along with it to avoid, you know, having to pay some fine or whatever. And I'll go in there and I'll, you know, Christmas tree the thing. Uh, actually, better yet, I'll write things in. I'll write in Tyrion Lannister for president. I'll write in Nucky Thompson for my senator. Jax Teller for Congress. Walter White for governor. And uh, Wilson Fisk for sheriff, I think. That's that's the ticket I would I would put in. Um, if they threatened me with penalties into mandatory voting, I'd say, fine, I'll vote. And I'll just write in a bunch of people that don't exist and you wouldn't like anyway. I'm also a big fan of what George Carlin has to say about voting. So I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes as well. George Carlin on not voting. The likelihood that your vote is going to accomplish the slightest bit of anything that's really positive is so minuscule as to be like less than impossible. Even if you don't share the view of some that voting itself is a form of aggression. And I kind of think it is, but I also kind of think it doesn't really matter because the election's going to happen and some psychopath, sociopath, narcissist, or combination of those three things is going to take the office, whether I go or stay home. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't see it as like a horribly, Bad thing. I mean, in a technical philosophical sense, I guess you could say voting is a, is a violation of the non-aggression principle. I don't see it as, as like an, a particularly egregious one, though, simply because the election is going to happen whether you stay home or not. And some jerk is going to end up voted into office whether you stay home or not. But um, in my mind, the biggest problem is the opportunity cost and time, money and energy and the fact that it is so unlikely to ever produce anything valuable or positive. And there's just so many better ways to use your resources that I highly recommend against voting.
But, you know, it's it's your life. Anyone in here who still is devoted to the concept of trying to vote your way to more freedom or vote your way to positive change or whatever, I'm, I'm not going to waste a whole ton of time, you know, attacking you or trying to persuade you. Uh, if anyone listening is in that boat, I'm just I'm just throwing out my opinion. You, you, you take it or leave it. Do what you want with it. Um, I think it's likely, though. And, and I base this simply on my own personal journey. You know, if you scenes get back. I don't know, a decade or so, I still kind of followed politics and voted sometimes and stuff. But based on my own personal journey and that of others that I know or that I've talked to, I think if you keep following the path of learning and of consistently working out the implications of important principles like self-ownership, the non-aggression principle, property rights, these, these sorts of things – if you simply carry them out to their conclusions and work out the inconsistencies in your own thinking and just keep learning more about how the system actually works and how badly it's failed to deliver the goods every single time in the past for centuries, and pay attention, too, to what happens when candidates who, who promise to do all these positive things, some of which you might even agree with, take office, how they never seem to actually deliver on anything that's good. And they only seem to deliver on the stuff they said they were going to do that's terrible. They seem to deliver on that like plus 10%. And just pay attention and keep thinking. And I really do believe that a lot of a lot more people would turn away from voting if they just keep that up. Don't let yourself be Charlie Brown every four years and having Lucy trick you into trying to kick the football. Don't don't keep coming back like a sucker. Figure out the con. Or don't. Like I said, it's your life. But uh, from the email, it sounded like ZH is on the same page with me as far as voting is bullshit. So thanks for those questions, ZH. And uh, on to the last segment for today, which is some weird stories, random weird stories. One last thing I wanted to share with you on this random, random hodgepodge episode relates to a bizarre piece of mail that I got. Uh, either earlier this week or last week. I forget exactly when I received it. And I'm also going to tell a story about something that happened to me probably nine or ten years ago that isn't really related but has some parallels, and this incident made me think of it. So anyway, bear with me. I hope you'll find this as strange and amusing of a story as I thought it was. So recently I get a piece of mail, an actual, you know, envelope, to me at work. And right away, the envelope itself weirds me out because... It's not even addressed to me by name. The letter, the envelope is typed like a typewriter, not like a computer printed the address on it. Someone stuck this in a typewriter and typed the address. It's postmarked from California, of all places. And on the, the two, it says St. John's River Community College, which, by the way, my college has not been called that in probably at least five years. Uh, St. John's River Community College Department of History. We actually don't have a Department of History. We're too small of a school to have a separate history department. We only have a Department of Social Sciences. So this is someone who has no idea about what my school is or anything like that. They don't even know that we haven't been called St. John's River Community College in forever or that we don't have an actual history department because we're too small. And then it just has Palatka, Florida and the zip code. It doesn't even have the street address of the college. Bizarre and, and crazy that it actually made it there. And then the return address, even though it's clearly postmarked from California, the return address is the same thing. St. John's River Community College, Palatka, Florida, and the zip code. So right away, I get this in my mailbox at work, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Then I opened it, opened it up, and there are some folded up pieces of paper, most of which are clearly typed with the same typewriter that the 
address on the envelope was typed. There's a small slip of paper, the first thing when you open it, dated simply 2016, and it reads, quote, Dear friends, okay, please print this material in your school newspaper. I don't even think we have one of those. Please make copies of this letter for other students. And then, please get student activists together to fight this ongoing behind-the-scenes holocaust and electronic torture. Thank you all. And that's all the little slip of paper that's sort of like the cover sheet says. Then you get into the meat of it, and it is a dense, single-spaced, typed... It looks like it's Xeroxed, but was originally typed with an old-school typewriter in all caps. It's hard to even read this thing, because it's gigantic, all-in-caps, single-spaced... And this bizarre document goes on for several pages. This document is dated May 2015. And let me just read you the opening part of this. The U.S. is being controlled by terrorists using electronics to do any dirty they want to anybody. They're in your bedrooms, bathrooms, telephones, computers, in your bodies recording your thoughts, and you're being followed everywhere you go as well as being audio and video recorded. We are supposed to have constitutional privacy rights, the ones with these electronics are the radio, television, major newspaper media, the entertainment industry, the government, and others. I do not know who these terrorist ringleaders are. I can't fight something I can't see. These terrorists, with these electronics of theirs, are killing people every day all over the country. They can also follow you anywhere you go in this world to do you dirty. To do you dirty? I wonder what that even means. I went overseas to two countries already, and these terrorists on my back did me dirty overseas, so I couldn't immigrate and had to come back to the U.S. They use many different kinds of electronics depending on the dirty these terrorists want to do. I was already shot twice by laser beams when I was in the street, then had to run. Nobody stood by me with any weapons when laser beams hit me, so my guess would be I was hit by satellite laser beams. These terrorists are the behind-the-scenes instigator instigators of the major israeli conflicts between september 2000 to the summer of 2014 suicide hijackers took revenge on the u.s on september 11 2001 for the investigation of the september 2000 israeli uprising instigated by these u.s terrorist ringleaders having bill clinton do their dirty work almost 3,000 people died horrible deaths on september 11 2001 these terrorists bragged in the 1990s that they were going to start an Israeli uprising by having a baking book published in the 1990s titled Uprisings, and by having an advertisement on a billboard along the I-10 freeway with the word Uprisings in the advertisements also in the 1990s. Over the years, I tried to get peace in that Mideast, but these terrorists on my back with these electronics of theirs turn everybody against me. The wrong people got killed on September 11th, I want you people to find the right ones, the September 2000 Israeli uprising instigators. If anybody knows electronic warfare experts, these terrorist ringleaders can be found. The process of satellite imaging is used to hone in on you inside your homes. Counter-surveillance equipment is available to protect your privacy. I went to an electronics warfare expert for some help, but since... Oh, sorry, but these terrorists that follow me everywhere I go with their electronics called up the electronics warfare expert and turned him against me so I couldn't get help. These terrorists push people to do what they want them to do. Their brainwashing techniques, which are mind control, coercive persuasion, mind abuse, thought control, thought reform, inducement of fear and or anger, usage of lies, which they do over the telephone, are so effective that they're able to control the way people think and even turn them into puppets. 
I even see the politicians doing what they want them to do. We have no functioning democratic government. These terrorist ringleaders, whom I want you to find, are controlling this country and creating world chaos. Your tax monies are in their hands, and they decide the outcome for when you go to vote for candidates, propositions, and referendums. You vote for nothing. These terrorists set people up to force them to make mistakes. Even though I like some of these Washington politicians, they're taking orders from terrorists. For example, these terrorists forced Clinton on Obama for Secretary of State in 2008 to get me angry. Clinton was not one of Obama's picks for Secretary of State. I didn't like what Clinton's husband did investigating the September 2000 Israeli uprising that led to September 11th a year later. All right, I'm going to go ahead and stop it there. That's basically the first page. And I think you get the idea, but this thing goes on for three more full pages like this. Also included were a couple of random printouts from the internet of things related to surveillance and so on. Now, this is one of those things where it hit me so out of the blue, such a random thing. I'm sure this person in California, whoever they are, probably mailed things like this to a bunch of random schools and colleges. There's no reason to think they have any clue who I am. They have not even the vaguest notion of what my college actually is or does, other than it's in Palatka and they, and they got the zip code right. But can you imagine you're at work and you get some piece of mail at work and it's kind of weird looking and you open it up and that's what you have? That was bizarre. I, I, it, it was just dumbfoundingly bizarre. Now, probably like me, you've occasionally run into flat out crazy people who rant about things like this or even more bizarre things. By the way, I agree with some of what they're saying as far as like, I don't trust our government and I think they're up to no good. But gee whiz, this is... You know, this is getting into obvious tinfoil hat country, I think. But anyway, you, like me, have probably run into some random crazy people at various points in time. And usually they are obviously, you know, mentally troubled and disturbed and what have you. I mean, you know, when you run into or see a person who clearly looks uh, homeless and very disheveled and, you know, even their, their gaze of their eyes looks a bit strange and what have you. And that person starts ranting about whatever, the end of the world, the apocalypse, the Jews, lizard people, the government put chips in my fillings, whatever it is. It's not that big of a deal because we're kind of used to, especially in major urban areas, kind of having those people occasionally show up and kind of walk by the periphery of our life. Most of the time they're harmless and you just kind of ignore them, walk the other way or whatever, and you go on with your day. But every now and then you get blindsided by something so bizarre and crazy it comes out of the blue and really kind of like throws you for a loop and just dumbfounds you and makes you want to laugh at the same time. And this crazy piece of mail was that. So I thought I would share that with you. I hope you find it amusing. And I want to share one more story with you, which in, in some ways was even weirder because it was a face-to-face thing. A memory of something that happened to me probably about 10 years ago that I had almost completely forgotten about. And then this crazy bizarre piece of mail kind of jogged that memory because it was the last time I was exposed to a person that was so crazy and in such a way that it didn't just seem like a typical, you know, raving homeless person who who needs some kind of medication. And like I said, this one was even more weird because it was someone actually face to face. And let me do my best to tell you that story. It was like I said, probably about 10 years ago, and I was in a Starbucks And I was doing some kind of work or writing on my computer. I had had my laptop with me, and I don't even remember what it was I was working on. But anyway, I'm doing some writing, what have you, and a guy suddenly sits down near me and starts sparking up a conversation. 
And he looked relatively normal. He didn't look like a homeless person. He didn't look disheveled. His, you know, hair was more or less brushed. He looked like he had, you know, that he bathed regularly. He was relatively clean cut and shaved and so on. And somehow or other, I guess I must have been working on some sort of creative writing because he asked something and I said, oh, I'm, I'm writing a, I think I said I'm writing a, a sci-fi story. And he seemed like a normal, nice guy making small talk. But then once I said something about I, I was writing a piece of sci-fi, he immediately starts launching into this extremely detailed story. And his facial expressions, his voice, everything indicated that either he's the greatest actor in the world or he genuinely believed what he was telling me. Now, let me tell you what this guy was telling me. And this is in broad daylight, you know, middle of the afternoon, bright, sunny day in Starbucks, normal looking dude setting, saying this stuff to you and deadpan and, and no like, you know, indication that he was kidding or anything. At first I was taking it as if he was kidding, but he was very deadpan, very much in earnest. And he told me that he had been, I think some sort of government agent or super soldier or something like this. And that in, in the process of doing that, he had participated in some different experiments and bizarre out there stuff. And he said that a lot of the things that are in Hollywood sci-fi movies are based on real stuff that the government's actually doing in secret. Now, some of you might be thinking that that's true or that might be true. And I think you're right if you're just talking about, you know, certain advanced technologies sometimes are revealed in Hollywood films before they're revealed to the public. I think there's some truth to that. I think that that has happened. But this guy was saying outlandish stuff. And again, all very seriously in earnest no indication that he was kidding or anything like that. And I don't remember all of what he said because it was long. This guy rambled on and it just got crazier and crazier. But one aspect of the things that he told me that stuck in my mind that I remember to this day is he said that Predator, the movie Predator, right, with Schwarzenegger and the alien that hunts people and can turn semi-invisible, that Predator, the movie Predator, based on a real thing that this man claimed to have been a part of. He said it was a government operation down in the jungles of South America to create this sort of like, I don't know, super biological weapon thing. He said they created, it wasn't exactly the same as the predator in the movie, but it, it was able to turn invisible and had some of the other same powers and technologies predator did. He said that the government had created what he called a leopard man. And the way he described the leopard man sounded a lot like the creatures on the island of Dr. Moreau. And he said the government had created this leopard man that had all these, you know, animal superpowers and super speed and stealth and whatever. And that also had the power that Predator had in the Predator movies to turn mostly invisible. And this guy said that he was sent down there because this leopard man, invisible predator creature was going off the reservation and so they called in my good buddy I'm meeting at Starbucks in this story to deal with the leopard man and take him out and he's telling me this long involved story about like how terrifying it was to hunt this deadly leopard man and anyway he then went into a big rant that all of the major hollywood directors are tied in with secret you know government military cia experiments and that all the wildest stuff you see in sci-fi and fantasy movies is actually reflecting real stuff the government's up to. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. And it was one of those things that at the time, like I was 
just absolutely dumbfounded by this. I think eventually I kind of, when I had had enough of this, at first I was kind of amused, but then after a while I was like, yeah, maybe I don't want to be around this guy too much. I don't know what the hell he's going to do next. Um, after a while I was like, well, yeah, good luck with all that, and sort of quietly left. But it was bizarre. It was just strange. It's like I said, this was an otherwise very normal, unassuming, clean-cut looking sort of a guy telling me all this stuff in dead seriousness. So anyway, I figured that was a good place to wrap wrap up this random hodgepodge, off-topic, mostly not much history-related episode for episode 100 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Next time we'll be back to doing history. Most likely it'll be the, the next episode in the ongoing series of the history of American slavery. In addition, um, I'm getting close to recording my Patreon bonus episode dealing with the Haitian Revolution and its impact on the politics of slavery in America. So look for that to be coming out relatively soon. I hope you'll keep listening to the Dangerous History Podcast for a hundred more or maybe even many hundred episodes. And stay safe. Don't let the invisible leopard man get you or the terrorist who might want to do dirty to you. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media. Like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org slash donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.